0: It is good to be here this morning. Yes, and we are approaching the uh, Lenten season. It starts uh, this week. Um, Before I get to that, I just wanted to say a word. Again, every once in a while, it's good for me to kind of go back and talk about my teaching method. The method in the madness, so to speak, because uh, I got gently reminded this last week that sometimes I push a little too far, too fast, and don't necessarily close all of the, uh, the thoughts. You know, in my head, it's a perfectly formed thought. Sometimes it doesn't quite come out the whole way. But there is a method, there is a teaching style that I'm trying to emulate, and that's basically Jesus' teaching style. What Jesus would do is basically smack you upside the head to make sure that you were listening. And then he would take you on a little journey. You know, and it's exactly what we need because, for I'm going to say, so much, so many of us, it's all of us. It's human nature to get set in our patterns, to get set with what is familiar, what is comfortable, with what we think we know. And if we're ever going to be able to learn something different, to see a different perspective, especially something as radically different as a message that Jesus is giving us, then we do have to get smacked upside the head. Think for just a second. Here's Jesus drawing big crowds, right? So he's got a lot of people out there that are starting to follow him. He knows, you know, only a small percentage of those are really serious about following him. Many are curious. They want to see what's going on. Crowds draw crowds. And so he says, I'm going to tell all of you something. Something. Unless you hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your sister and brother and even your own life, you can't follow me. Now, you just got to stop for a second. To a Jew, to in any way disparage your parents was a capital offense under the law. You could be stoned for that. What is Jesus doing? Hey, he's smacking him upside the head. But if you continue to follow on with what he's saying... Once you get that jolt, once you get that, 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 that crazy statement that makes absolutely no sense, then he goes on to say, unless you pick up your cross and follow me. That's another slap in the head for them because the cross was the Roman method of execution. They were the oppressors. Pick up your cross voluntarily? Are you kidding me? But then he tells two stories. He says, if you're going to build a tower, you've got to count the cost first. Make sure you have all the building materials and all the resources you need to complete. Otherwise, you lay the foundation, you got to stop, and you look like a fool. Or what king, he says, before he goes to war with another king, doesn't make sure that he has everything that he needs. And if he's only got 10,000 men and the other guy's got 20, then he sends an emissary out to make peace. You know, smart. Unless you are willing, he says, to let go of everything you can't follow. Now we see where he's going with this. The most precious thing, analogous to survival itself to an ancient Jew, was family, was the clan. And yet Jesus is telling him, if you can't even let that go, even that, then you're never going to be able to be completely emptied to be able to be filled with what I have for you. See, this is where he's going with this. So that's teaching style, is what I'm trying to emulate in here as well. I know how hard it was for me to get some of these concepts through my thick, obsessive skull. It took years and years. And I know that when we hear things, sometimes it sounds right and our heads go up and down, but it's not penetrating. We are still hearing through the filter of what we think we know. And so to get that slap, hearing something that you don't think makes any sense at all or is heretical, then now we got a chance to actually have a conversation. A couple of weeks ago I said, you know, we sit here and we pray to God and we ask for God to save us, but no one's coming. Okay, that was a smack upside the head because it sounds like, well, where in the world is he coming from? But the reason no one's coming is because he's already here. He never left us. He'll never leave or forsake. So again, that That style is what I'm trying to get across. And so I guess what I'm saying is it was a a reminder to me, and I'm really glad that I got it so that I can work harder to make sure I close off the thoughts, come complete circle. And then if you would keep listening with me until we get to the end of that thought and then see if we're not as maybe closer together than it would at first seem. Because I am an unabashed follower of Jesus. I follow Jesus as best as I can as I understand him from this first century point of view which has taken my life and just put it through the wearing blender because he came so differently than I ever imagined as I was growing up as a young Catholic and all my religious training to date. So here we are. The goal then is to keep shedding what we think we know to keep being willing to let go of what is comfortable, what is familiar, what, what has served us so far in the face of what is coming, what this new, completely different way of living life that Jesus is trying to get through to us. And that being said, I want to try to see if I can push the envelope again today. How about that? No, no breaks here. And what I really want to do is to try to rethink Lent. How many of you know about Lent? You know, I know a lot of you have been raised in in Catholic Church or Episcopal or High Methodist, Lutheran, and they're liturgical churches. They celebrate a liturgical cycle. And so the liturgy is simply just a set of rituals and, and prayers and words and ceremonies for public worship that any one body sets down. And those are liturgical churches. They're driven by this liturgy. And it's a cycle that goes either one year or two year, and then it repeats and continues on. And, of course, Lent is part of that cycle. And so we have had an idea about what Lent is, at least I know I have, and I want to see if we can repurpose that and then put it to use this year. Lent is the 40-day period, in case you have no familiarity with what it is, the 40-day period that precedes and goes right up until Easter. And it's meant to mirror Jesus' 40 days in the desert. And as early as the mid-2nd century There were mentions of this 40-day fasting, period of penance, period of self-examination that would lead us up to Resurrection Day, up to new life. And by the mid-4th century, it was moved by Pope Gregory to Wednesdays. It used to start on the Sundays um, before Easter. And then Gregory is the first one who started using ashes that he would place on people as a symbol of their penitence and a symbol of their desire to move in new directions. This week is the start of Lent. And it starts actually on Tuesday with Shrove Tuesday. I don't know if you've ever heard of that term Shrove Tuesday. To shrive in Middle English is to absolve. And so what would happen in the ancient church is on Tuesday people would go to confession, they would confess their sins, they would be given a penance, and they would be absolved of their sins, and so that it was named Shrove Tuesday. But what they would do, and I, I want to just give you kind of a flavor of the history, because it's, it's, to me it's just so interesting. I hope you're mildly interested. What they would do is they'd ring a bell, either at 11 a.m. or at noon, which was a call to confession for all the people. And so the people would come, and they'd come to the church, and they would start confessing. It was also a reminder that at the end of the day was starting the fast, the great fast that started on Ash Wednesday. And the fast was very strict. You were not allowed to eat any animal products, any meat, any fish, any rich foods whatsoever. So it was also a call to use up all your fatty foods, all your milk and your butter and your eggs before the end of the day because on Wednesday you couldn't eat it anymore and that stuff was going to go bad for 40 days, right? And so it became known as Pancake Tuesday because that was the easiest way to get rid of all your stuff, right? Your flour, your milk, your eggs, your, your butter, and so they'd make pancakes. In fact, there were sayings that they would actually be starting to prep the pancakes as they were running home from the church. So some cities still in England, and Olney is famous for this, in Buckinghamshire, in, in England, they have pancake races through the town. Where it's primarily women, but sometimes it's men. You know, In Olney, it's all the women. They have aprons on. They have either a hat or a scarf. And they've got a skillet with a pancake in it. And they got to run through the town on some pre-described course Flipping the pancakes at least three times and the first one to get to the bellkeeper, serve him the pancake and give him a kiss on the cheek is the winner. But this idea of pancake day, you know, it also was the idea that this, this Tuesday was the last day that you could really eat all these rich foods and you could gorge. And so it became a carnival day. You know, it's called Fat Tuesday in English, Mardi Gras in French. I'm sure you're all familiar with that term. Mardi Gras simply means Fat Tuesday. It is that carnival day in New Orleans that's gotten so out of control and has nothing to do with anything we're talking about anymore, I understand, but that was the genesis of it. And so Tuesday then leads into Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is a day of strict fast. It's the first day of Lent, and it's actually 46 days before Easter if you really want to count it out. But what the church has done is saying, well, you don't count the Sundays as fast days because each Sunday is a commemoration of the resurrection. It's a feast day, and so you don't fast. So you take the six Sundays out and you're back to 40. So this idea of 40 days before. Ash Wednesday, starting with Pope Gregory in the mid-600s, was a time where ashes were introduced. The person is now absolved from their sins, is repentant, and is trying to go through a period of self-examination and really working toward changing their lives in new ways, preparing for resurrection and new life. And so the idea in the ancient world, and especially in the Old Testament, if you read it, there's always that idea of sackcloth and ashes that was representative of mourning, of desolation, of repentance. And the, uh, the ancient person would wear a sackcloth, which was usually goat hair turned inside out, so it's really uncomfortable, and keeping ashes on their head. And actually, the early church did sprinkle or dump the ashes on your head. I'm glad they don't do that anymore. Um, it evolved into the drawing of a cross on the forehead. And the ashes come from the burning of the palm branches from last year's Palm Sunday. And then they're blessed by the priest, and they're used um, to... Uh, inscribe the cross. And then from there, you move into the rest of Lent and all the feast days leading up to Holy Week, which starts with Holy Saturday and, and so on and so forth. And we'll be talking about that more. So you got Shrove Tuesday, you got Ash Wednesday, and then you got the beginning of Lent. And Lent really is this sort of analog, I suppose, an emulation of Jesus' 40 days in the, in the wilderness. The word Lent itself comes from Middle English as well, lengthen, which literally means long days, but it became known as springtime, or the spring season, because the days are lengthening you know, from the uh, winter solstice or equinox into solstice, winter solstice into what's going to be the spring equinox, so the days are lengthening. And so it was always in springtime, you know, Easter's always bouncing around, so these Shrove Tuesday and, and Ash Wednesday are as well, but they're always 40 days or 46 days before Easter. And they're really trying to get us to mirror this this time of Jesus in the desert. And 40 is one of those numbers in Scripture that is usually not meant to be taken literally because it has a very, very strong spiritual significance. It always means a time of trial and testing or initiation into a rebirth And if you look at the times that the 40, number 40, is used, think of Moses. Moses' life is divided into three sets of 40. He was said to have lived to 120. The first 40 as a prince of Egypt, second 40 as a Midian shepherd, and the third 40 as a leader of his people. Each one of those cycles is a time of trial and testing into a rebirth. There's always a complete change in his life at each one of those cycles. And, of course, as he's leading the Israelites 40 years in the desert, which is their time of trial and testing, into the rebirth that takes them into the promised land. Elijah wandered for 40 days trying to get to Mount Horeb. Noah is 40 days in the ark because of the flood. Do you see the, the pattern that's here? Uh, Jonah uh, prophesied 40 days for Nineveh to be able to get their act straight before God would level their city, and they did. Their only time in recorded scripture where people actually listen to the prophet. And he didn't want them to listen. He wanted them to be wiped out. That's why he ran. Anyway, I digress. And then there's Jesus. Okay. Jesus has his 40 days in the wilderness before he starts his public ministry. Time of trial and testing into rebirth. There's a tradition that Jesus spent 40 hours in the tomb. Not a full three days, but spanning three days. From Thursday afternoon to early Sunday morning, there's 40 hours. And then after he rises on Easter Sunday, he appears to the apostles for 40 days before he ascends into heaven. This is just a handful of so many more examples of this fortiness. And every time it's used, it's about this shape. It's a descent before the ascent. It's a time of trial and testing, uh, of of desolation even desperation, before things turn and move up the other side. And so Jesus goes into the wilderness. This is an emptying for him, another kenosis that Paul talks about, an emptying of everything that he is, moving out into silence, into nothingness, but also into suffering and exhaustion. And I wanted to just read from a couple of the Gospels so we can get a flavor of what's going on here. From Mark 1, at verse 9, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And that word there, ekbalo, in the Greek, there's a lot of urgency there. Almost violence. There's a, there's a push there's a real urgency for him to go out in into this wilderness and you can imagine at this point Jesus is unknown we haven't this is the first we've heard of him since he was 12 years old and was uh, was brought by his parents into Jerusalem for passover so all of this that happened in those intervening years he goes to his cousin John he's baptized and he feels this urgency to leave everything that he knows and move out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's only after the 40 days, after this time of trial and testing, into a rebirth that Jesus comes back home again, and begins his public ministry. Full cycle. You know, rite of passage. Hero's journey. It's all of that. This is the shape that keeps coming back, this motif that keeps repeating over and over in Scripture, and that the church is trying to get us to enter into. Then at Matthew uh, 4, well, before we go there, you think about it. Why the desert? Why the wilderness? Why did Jesus go out into this desolate place? And then, why the suffering? Was the suffering just for its own sake? See, that's not what's being put across here. Fasting, you know, refraining from eating either certain foods or all foods is a deprivation. It is a form of suffering. But it's there for a very specific reason, which is to bring our awareness back, to come back into presence. Every time we don't eat, every time we interrupt our usual cycles, it causes us to stop and take notice. Just like that slap in the head when you get that that statement. It's like, oh, what's going on here? So I'm not eating. Or I feel the hunger pains and I remember. It's calling to mind over and over again what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. For Jesus to go out into the desert places to quiet all the noise all of the things, all the scattered bits and pieces of whatever his life was like beforehand, he's shutting it down, he's going out and just finding that silence, finding that place so that he can start to see what is really true in his life. And I know for some of us that sounds so strange. Why did Jesus need to do that? He was Jesus, he was God's son. But the scriptures also tell us he was a man, fully a human being who had to learn and progress Look at Luke 2, just as we all did. And so this is him moving into that deeper place with his father so that he can come back with that authority, with that conviction, knowing what was true. Now over the years, the centuries, actually over the millennia, we've lost this connection. The church lost this connection. Early on to put this 40-day period was a beautiful thing. Usually this 40-day period was imposed on someone who was preparing for baptism. is what they would do. Then it got put on to, lent to the general population of the church as well. But then the meaning got shorn from the symbol. The, the, the deeper meaning got disconnected from the practice. And so the suffering, the deprivation, became an end in itself instead of a means to something greater. And so I remember as a kid, you know, what are you going to give up for Lent? Uh, chocolate. Candy bars. You know? And I was just like, oh God, I've got to do this. But, you know, it was almost as if you give up something, some sort of pleasure that you really love with the understanding that God's going to reimburse you later. You know? God's going to reward you later. God's going to bless you later if I just do this. Like some sort of vicarious you know, blessing that's going to take place rather than understanding what it really is. It's a time of voluntarily just simplifying, voluntarily silencing so much of the activity so we can find out what is really true. Not a contractual arrangement with God, not a quid pro quo, but a moving into deeper relationship. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He moves out into the wilderness, which is probably desert, into sort of a sensory deprivation. There's just so much less going on out there, letting go of everything that was familiar, all the noise, which is why he can come back and say with such authority, if you can't even hate your father and mother, and hate there just means to prefer less. The word sana in Aramaic means that, not to hate the way we normally think of it. But he did that. He left his family. He left the comforts of home to find this father that was so radically different. Removing everything he knew as a human being, everything he relied on to experience whatever was left. Because whatever is left by the time we take out all that noise, all that stuff that rattles in around in our head, is true reality, is our father in heaven. And so now, at Matthew 4, we have a longer version of this from Matthew. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Yeah. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. These three temptations, Henry Nouwen so beautifully in the way of the heart interprets that they are the fullness of all of the obsessive, compulsive drives that we have to face as human beings. They are the needs for relevance, for power, and to be spectacular, to be a a spectacle, to be head and shoulders above the rest. Jesus had to put those down just like everybody did. He had to understand how does he go about this process of relying solely on his Father in heaven, and not on his own steam, not on his own intellect, not on his talents, not on anything that he could bring to bear. In other words, he went out into the desert to find his powerlessness so that he could become one with all the power that there is. And again, that might sound strange because we're talking about Jesus, but I believe that the scripture supports that. And certainly, if we are going to enter into Jesus' way, this path, this shape of his journey, That's what we're going to experience. We have to find the end of ourselves, our powerlessness, so that we can find out what is really true, how this thing really works. So, what about us? What's true? What's real? What is it about us that is really true and really real? Is it our jobs? Is it our families, careers? What are the parts of us that really are true and really smack of complete and ultimate reality? And as long as we're swimming in everything that we think is us, everything that we think is our lives, then it's going to be so difficult for us to ever figure that out. What is real? What is essential? What is life-giving? Isn't that the question that Jesus keeps getting asked? What must I do to obtain eternal life? What actually gives life? And what's just distraction? Jesus, clearing the decks for us, you know, you've got to let go of everything, family, your own life, everything that you think is your sustenance in order to get to this truth. This is what he's trying to get across to us. And then he tells us that the gate is constricted, it's small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few ever find it. And we think he's talking about heaven and hell, but he's not. He's talking about this process right here, right now. Are we willing to make that descent? Are we willing to go through that process of stripping away, letting go of all these things that we think are our strengths in order to find out what really is? This is the, this is the question. This is what Lent is really recognizing. This is what Lent is trying to bring to us if we'll listen. This fortiness this time of trial and testing that we will voluntarily institute on ourselves. Not waiting for life to strip us, but actually moving into a voluntarily stripping away of everything that distracts us from the truth, everything that we think is really us. It's prep for new life. It's prep for regeneration. It's preparation for really being born again. Being born again into spirit, into the understanding of what that really means, takes preparation. It doesn't just happen to us. We are partners with as we move through this. It makes all the difference in the world. I wanted to read you just a little passage. I don't know if Baron is here today. I don't see her. But uh, she posted an article on uh, Facebook and, and Frank saw it and sent it to me and it just jumped off the page at me as being perfect. I want to read you just a little bit of it. It's called Withering into Truth. And it's written by Parker Palmer. And he first quotes William Butler Yeats, famous English poet. Though leaves are many, the root is one. Through all the lying days of my youth, I swayed my leaves and flowers in the sun. Now may I wither into the truth. Now may I wither into the truth. In a few days, I'll turn 78. When friends say they don't know what to give me for my birthday, I always respond with the same tired old joke they've heard from me before, which causes them to sigh and roll their eyes and change the subject. Here's a perk that comes with age. Repeat yourself so often that folks think you're getting dotty, (laughs) when in fact you're fending off unwarranted conversations or unwanted conversations. Question, what do you give the man who has everything? Answer, penicillin. <laughs> uh, I know. I don't need gifts of a material nature, but I do need to remember a few things I've learned during my nearly 80 decades on earth. The Yeats poem at the head of this column names something I don't want to forget. Actively embracing aging gives me a chance to move beyond the lying days of my youth and wither into the truth if I resist the temptation to Botox my withering, that is. My youthful lies, quote-unquote, weren't intentional. I just didn't know enough about myself, the world, and the relation between the two to tell the truth. So what I said on those subjects came from my ego, a notorious liar. Coming to terms with the sole truth of who I am, of my complex and often confusing mix of darkness and light, has required my ego to shrivel up. Nothing shrivels a person better than age. That's what all those wrinkles are about. Whatever truthfulness I've achieved on this score comes not from a spiritual practice, but from my having my ego so broken down and composted by life that eventually I had to yield and say, okay, I get it, I'm way less than perfect. I envy folks who come to a personal truth via spiritual discipline. I call them contemplatives by intention. Me, I'm a contemplative by catastrophe. <laughs> Don't you love that. Contemplative by catastrophe. But what he's pointing to is so instructional here because he didn't become a contemplative by intention because he didn't intentionally strip away, move into the quiet spaces, move into the desolate spaces. Life had to do that for him, and life will do it to every single one of us. Whether you get to be 78 or whatever age, life hands you so much difficulty that you finally get, I guess, shriveled up in his, in his uh, imagery. You finally get stripped away of all the stuff that you think is going to carry you through, and you can finally start to see what is really truth. Everything that he believed as a young man, everything that he relied on as a young man, he's obviously, he's a writer, he's a novelist, you know, he, he's a columnist. All those things that he could do and do so well that pushed his career forward, that gave him money and sustenance, all that stuff, the certainty that he had for life, the columns he wrote about certain subjects. Now he looks back and says, those were the lies. And now that I've gotten this stripped away, here's the truth that I'm starting to actually see after everything was stripped away that he thought he possessed, what he was left with had to be the truth. And he's seeing that now. This idea of withering into truth from Yeats is just an incredible image. And so what Lent is for us is an opportunity to begin becoming a contemplative by intention, to start the process of this withering. And I know that sounds terrible. You know, who wants to wither? but to start the process of stripping away, of shrinking down from who we think we are in our minds and coming into this deeper and deeper truth. We've got to stop seeing Lent, though, as a negative. It's not about just taking away things that are pleasurable and as some sort of penance for sin, again, in some sort of contractual way. It's not about that. We need to start looking at it as a positive, as affirmative action, if you will, to move out into greater silence, greater simplicity, to start to see our lives from a different point of view, a different angle. For us, if we handle it right, Lent can be an intentional and a concentrated training time, like a primer, like like a microcosm of of what life is going to look like if you're following the way. But we can take this 40-day period, this finite space, and say, let's do something different with it. I'm going to do something different with it. I'm going to move into those quiet spaces, those desolate spaces within. It doesn't mean we're going to quit our jobs. It doesn't mean we're going to forget our family. This is an interior journey. Look at what that last quote from uh, Rainer Rilke. The only journey is the one within. This is an interior journey. Jesus made an exter- exterior journey in order to facilitate the interior journey. Some of us need to do that. But we can all start right here and right now. We can start with this 40-day lead-up. And you just ask, well, how am I supposed to do that? Inside your bulletins today, there are two sheets. One of them are six exercises for mindfulness, and the other is guidelines for centering prayer. How about we take the 40 days that are going to start on Wednesday and dedicate ourselves to a new discipline, just for this 40 days. Dedicate ourselves to daily, every day, working for mindfulness. And as you read through that list, you'll see you've got mindfulness simply by breathing, by following your breath, being aware of your breath. You've got mindfulness by observation, just looking at things as if for the first time. I love the story that Marion was having a really bad day as we were getting the house ready to sell. And it was just a crazy time. And I remember her calling me and telling me it was just a difficult day. And then as she was cleaning the bedroom, she looked at the, at the window, and on the screen, she saw something, and she got closer, and it was a praying mantis. You know, Those are pretty big bugs. You know, This guy was about this big. And he's hanging on the, on the screen, and she got real close to him and looked at You know, He's got that alien-looking triangular face with the big eyes. He's looking back at her. All of a sudden, his head goes like this. And it just rocketed her into the moment. It's just like, wow, this thing is looking at me. And I don't know, you you probably spent 10 minutes just staring at this bug. He was there for like three and a half days. It became, we were always running back to the window. Yep, he's still there. He's still there. It was the coolest thing. Just observing stuff, stuff that you see every day, but seeing it as if for the first time. Can you take one of these six that are listed there and do one every day? Experiment. See what works. There's mindful listening. Listen to a track or a song you've never listened before in a genre you don't particularly even like. And see what that does for you. To hear it, the music, as if brand new, without any kind of judgment, just allowing yourself to be. This is going into the journey within. This is moving into the quiet, simple, even desolate places within. To strip away everything that we think we know and just become mindful to the bug on the screen, how would that change things? Take a look at what centering prayer is all about. Those of you who have daily devotions, ramp them up. Maybe you read a little bit from scripture or from a a daily devotional or from anything that you're reading, scripture of course, and then fall silent. The temptation to continue to try to form words and to say things to God, just let it fall away, step away from it. If you want to work on centering prayer, read the guidelines. It's very simple. Choose a sacred word and just lay it down on your consciousness. Let it dissipate, all of those thoughts, and just rest in that silence for 20 or 30 minutes. Take a walking meditation. But if we, in this 40 days, can dedicate ourselves to becoming quiet in any way that we can, set yourself a goal and keep the goal. Set yourself a modest goal so it's not something that is going to blow you out within two or three days. Something that you can and will do. And just see where it takes you. Because it's not so much about learning theological thoughts that are going to take us where Jesus is trying to take us. It's about unlearning all the things that we think we know. Epictetus, the, uh, the great... Greek philosopher said it's impossible to, for a man to learn what he thinks he already knows. Can we let all that stuff go using these exercises, using these techniques to be able to more and more see what's really there, see who our Father is? This is what we're really talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about. Can we leave our normal state of mind, the familiar state, and strip it down And get to this journey within, this Lenten journey within, and use this time in a very different way. It's not about giving up candy bars. It's about letting go of the things that stand between you and this brand new life that Jesus has for us, that he is so beautifully, that we're so beautifully going to recall and relive on Easter Sunday when he rises out of the tomb itself. This journey, the only journey that we really need to take is the one within. Jesus told us that. The kingdom is not out there someplace. It's right here. It's within you. It's among you. And it's in your midst. And it's the only place you're ever going to find it. And unless we clear a space, we won't even know that it's there. This Lent, let's start. Choose something. We'll send out some reminders to see if we can all get on some sort of page that will take us someplace we've never been before. And if any of you have questions or need help, my number is on the back of the bulletin. Call me. Let's talk about it. If something doesn't make any sense, if you're trying something and it's not working, let's talk about it. Let's work through it together. It's not an easy thing we're talking about doing here. It's going to run against the grain of everything that we think we know, and that's the point. If it's not shocking you, if it's not slapping you upside of the head, then you're not doing something different. You're doing the same thing that will get the same results and Jesus is pointing us in a completely different direction. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the thousands of years of church history the thousands of years of of scripture that give us these deep, deep truths in ways that we can actually act out. Help us to understand more and more what is really there, what is really being conveyed to us so that we can enter in, so that we can take and follow the shape of this journey as you intended for us as your children. It's an incredible thing that we can participate with you, Father. Thank you for trusting us this way, loving us and trusting us enough to make us free enough to choose this. Help us to choose. Help us to overcome whatever we need to overcome to do this more and more in our lives every single day. And thank you for this liturgy. Thank you for these holy days that remind us what we're really all about. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.